Welcome to the Sport of Kings podcast. On this week's pod, we are handicapping the All Stakes Pick 5 from Keeneland on Saturday, July 11th. This is show number 71, July 10th, 2020. I'm Scott Carson, founder of Sport of Kings, and I'm joined by my co-host, Hall of Fame handicapper, Chris Larmy. Chris, are you as excited about the races as I am? Definitely. I mean, now we'll have... Del Mar and Saratoga, the two premier summer meets in full swing. And then something that's never happened before, at least not in my memory, we have Keeneland running a summer meet right in the middle of everything with a great card on Saturday that we're going to discuss. So this is about as good as it gets for summertime racing. So as a fan and a player, I'm really excited. And I'm also just as excited about sport of kings and i wanted to find out from you how are things going with the india gogo all right well yeah the site is uh the site is coming along and we're doing heavy testing now and as many of our listeners know we are running an indiegogo campaign to raise funds for the creation of the website now you may not play contests and may just be listening to help your handicapping and that's cool but if you've ever hit a big pick four or five with our help we'd be very appreciative if you contributed to the campaign. Share some of the winnings. The reason we are running the campaign is because no large racing organization would finance Sport of Kings. And it's not that expensive, but it's expensive enough that it's going to cost about 150000 to run in its first year. By contributing, you are helping to grow the sport. And there are many things that can be improved in racing, as we see on Twitter on a regular basis. Everybody complains about uh, drug rules and, and medication rules, and, and you know it goes on. But this is a chance to be part of something that will improve racing, because there are going to be free PPs for every contest race. And that is a trend we want to accelerate, where f- for data and PPs are free, at least in a, their basic form, for new people to the sport. So someday there will be free basic PPs for every race. I, I, I do believe, and more and more we're seeing free PPs. And you will be partly responsible for that. Any contributor will be partly responsible for that. Well, yeah, and if you do contribute, um, how do they go about doing that? You know, How can they contribute if they are interested in doing so? And is there any sort of... Uh, reward for participation or contribution? Well, um, in fact, yes, we give away some pretty cool stuff. We have Sport of Kings t-shirts, face masks, and for a $100 contribution, you get all those things plus access to a weekly preview of the site via Zoom meeting. And to get to the Indiegogo, uh, just go to sportofkings.net 
where I put a link there this morning. So go to sportakings.net and that there's a link there that goes straight to the Indiegogo. I would give you uh, a, a, an address for the Indiegogo, but uh, it's, it's, it's too long. So to get to the Indiegogo, just go to sportakings.net and there is a link there and that will go straight to the Indiegogo. And we appreciate anything anybody can give. We really appreciate it. And you don't have to give a lot. Everything that you contribute is something that will help improve the sport. And it, you can become part of something right from the ground up that's cool and fun and will help grow the sport. And also something that hopefully will be something that you can play and enjoy for years to come. And again, that was sportofkings.net, and I assume that will be the same website that the contests will actually be posted on once the site is up and running. Is that right, Scott? That is the URL because somebody is squatting on sportofkings.com, even though they're not using it. Well, sportofkings.net sounds fine to me. I'm not sure what the difference is between .net and .com. I'm not into the... Uh, internet lingo that much but to me as long as you can get there it's fine with me i actually like it better because it's more of like a network and we want it to be a community feel as opposed to a commercial sportofkings.com would be commercial it means it's a commercial site so so net is even better great and we have a special guest he's the timeform u.s analyst for daily racing forum He's the respected morning line odds maker for Naira. And he's a damn good handicapper, giving out winners all the time, including a 13 to 1 yesterday at Belmont. He's David Aragona. David, an honor to have you on the show. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Welcome, David. We're doing good. And um, usually we ask a couple of questions because maybe. Some of our listeners haven't heard of you or they haven't listened to your pod. So, um, but I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to, I have one question, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it to Chris because he usually has a few good questions. Uh, Chris, do you have anything for David? Well, we haven't had a morning line maker on the pod before. And I know that's a little bit different way of thinking about the races than just handicapping the race. So I'm just curious, David, um, now that you've been doing this for a while with the morning line, has that changed the way you look at races? Has that improved you as a handicapper or as a horse player? Just a little bit I'm curious as to how that's fit into the big picture. It's definitely changed the way I look at races. I, I don't know if I would say it's made me a better handicapper. It, it's made me a different kind of handicapper. Uh, it. I'm forced to like segment the two sides of my brain, the one that contains my opinions and the one that kind of has to think about uh, how the public is going to approach a race. So I, I kind of do treat it as two different jobs. So I kind of first do the morning line and kind of have to remove myself from that exercise as I think about, you know, what do I know the public likes to bet? How are just people in general going to view this race? And then I kind of have to put all of that aside and go back and do my own handicapping on top of that. Uh, and sometimes those two things overlap. And sometimes that first exercise actually informs the other. And uh, I'll have a better sense of how to 
to decide what I want my opinion to be based on where I think other people are going to go, uh, having already thought that out. So that helps me. Um, but really, I find that it just kind of spreads out the work over a longer period of time, because typically you sit down and handicap a race and have your opinions when you're done. I kind of go through different stages of a process to get there these days. Have you caught yourself maybe having your opinion of the race affect your morning line in a way it probably shouldn't say that you like a horse more than the public will, so you you put the price a little lower than it should be on the morning line? Have you caught yourself doing that, or have you, or did you used to catch yourself doing that, and have you gotten better about that? I'm just curious, is, does that bleed, does one bleed into the other? Once in a while, um, obviously, when I first started out, I, I would catch myself doing that a lot more. Uh, these days, I, I feel like I've gotten it down to a point where I just know to avoid that. Um, obviously, I'm still going to make mistakes every so often. I mean, the most recent one I can point to was in the Manhattan uh, last week when I, I just didn't quite get Rock Emperor and didn't see the appeal of him and kind of overlooked the fact that there were some obvious things to like about him. Uh, so that was a situation where I, I, I probably did let my opinion influence the line a little bit too much. Um, but generally, those have become fewer and far between as I get more experience doing it. It does seem like it would be really good. I mean, what you're trying to do is to find value where your opinion differs significantly from the public opinion. And to be able to get better at assessing what the public opinion will be would seem really valuable. Maybe not so much in vertical plays, on, but in you know horizontals where you don't have visibility into the pools in the later races. It seems like having a really good understanding of how the public's going to play a race can really help you find value in those horizontal plays. Have you found that to be the case? And have you gotten better at, at your horizontal plays since you started doing the morning line? I don't know if I've necessarily thought about it in those terms. Um, I, I do think as a general principle, uh, having accurate morning lines makes uh, the uh, horizontal wagers a little bit easier to to get to wrap your head around because uh, you do notice sometimes when you've got really wacky, way off morning lines um, that they can affect some of the multi-race wagers and the way people play them, uh, sometimes in ways that are a little undesirable. So that's when I play other tracks at sometimes and I, I see things that are um, let's just say, um, not predictive, uh, on the morning line, uh, then, you know, that makes the multi-race wagers a bit more difficult to construct because you're kind of trying to not wait. Those horses are going to get, get bet down too much and kind of get burned doing that. Uh, so I try to just make what I put out there as accurate as possible to, so that I don't have to think about that when I'm constructing the multi-race wagers. Um, and I, I hope people appreciate that too. Well, I do appreciate it. I know you put a lot of effort into your morning lines, and they're really good, and they are noticeably better than at some other tracks. Um, so, you know, I appreciate that, and I know a lot of other players do. And the morning line in a few of these races is interesting, so I'll be in, I'll would like to hear your opinion on those um, as well, because some of these, they're tough to make the morning line on a few of these races, and I'll be curious to see what you think the um, post-time price will be on a few of these horses, which is a, a good lead-in to covering the races unless Scott has some additional questions for you. I do have a question, but I also have an observation. David is the first guy every single day to see the morning line for Belmont. 
Lucky him. Because <laughs> we always appreciate oh. when you when you put them out early on Twitter. And, um, you know, the great thing is uh, you're you, so you always know it before anybody else. I don't know if that gives me an advantage per se, but that that is a true statement. <laughs> I do want to second that. I really appreciate those early morning lines on the stakes races, especially on the big days for people like us and you who do podcasts. It's nice to know that morning line in advance, especially when it, it's usually a solid morning line like the one you put out for Naira. So I, I do appreciate that as well. Now, as much as I would like to uh, get right to the races, I do have a, a pretty uh, uh, interesting question that I wanted to ask David, and, and, and that is this. Um, when I listen to the DRF podcast, I really appreciate your observations of horses' physical action during their races. So, for example, you didn't like Got Stormy last week because you didn't like her action in her previous two races, and you liked the action of Dr. Post in a race leading up to I think it was his first two-turn race, and it was a nice win by him. And and you liked, he, he, like he had labored, but then he really sort of uh, he improved his gait, his uh, gallop toward the end. So so I want to ask, how did you learn how to spot that action, and what would you recommend to listeners who want to improve that skill on their own? Um, so horse, uh, body language and horse action when they're running. Uh, I think that's one of the most difficult things to sort of wrap your head around when you're not a horseman and I am not a horseman. I haven't spent a significant amount of time around horses. I just appreciate them from afar and really enjoy the handicapping and, and wagering process. Uh, so, I mean, all I've really done is just listen to other smart people and try to uh, pick up some nuggets of information that they're that they're throwing my way. So, I mean, obviously, I've listened a lot to Naira's excellent paddock analyst, Maggie Wolfendale. Uh, she's somebody who is a horseman and or a horsewoman, I should say, and um, knows uh, just a ton about horse confirmation and and the kind of signals they're giving you before a race. And I, I can't even fathom having the kind of base of knowledge that somebody like her has. Um, and uh, what I do, though, is kind of listen to some easily some things that I can incorporate into my own handicapping, um, like some obvious things to look for that a horse is trying to tell you before a race or things about their build that that are plain to the eye to see uh, when a horse is built like a sprinter as opposed to a router or a turf horse as opposed to, uh, you know, a big burly dirt horse. Um, so so things like that um, I've become more aware of uh, as I've just tried to listen to people that know what they're talking about when it comes to that stuff. In terms of watching races, uh, I, I think that a lot of trip handicappers, even those that really know what they're doing, uh, sometimes get a little too caught up in just watching the jockey and not actually watching the horse. Uh, and what I what I mean by that is, you know, you'll see trips and and jockeys, um, you know, having to steady or or making a wrong decision. And we get really caught up in what the jockey did wrong. And I think sometimes it is actually more valuable to pay attention to why the jockey had to do that because of the horse's actions. Um, like just yesterday, I'm thinking about that ride that Jose Ortiz gave that heavy favorite Mrs. Danvers in the eighth race at Belmont. And I saw a lot of people criticizing Jose after the race. And I think some of that is justified because he was riding heavy favorite and he, he, he made a move as if he had to get a little lucky to win the race by trying to save some ground on the turn when he probably could have just gone around the field. But 
I think we have to be aware of every prior race that Mrs. Danvers has run, especially going back to when she was a two-year-old in Saratoga. And she is a horse that in almost every race breaks a little bit slowly, immediately after the start, gets very rank, uh, does not really respond to the rider's cues at all early in a race. Uh, we saw Joel Rosario really struggle with that during the summer last year. And, you know, she was able to win a race in Saratoga because she was just better than those horses and she's run well in some prior races. But it was the first time that Jose was riding her and it, he probably wasn't fully prepared for how much he was going to sort of disobey the, the commands he was giving her. Uh, so I, I think people sometimes have to be aware of, you know, I'm just not automatically going to bet this horse back because she got a bad ride. It, it might have been the horse's character that caused that issue. Interesting. Well. Um... That's cool. Uh, we'll, we'll um, hopefully, you know, at some point, maybe, I don't know, you can, uh, you can tell me who the, uh, some of the other people that you listen to about uh, body languages, but we should get to our races because the pod needs to be uh, uh, somewhat brief. And we'll start with the fifth race at Keeneland. Now the Keeneland uh, stakes program stakes schedule tomorrow is, is great. And I was worried that we weren't going to be doing the pick five because we were doing races five through nine and not the last five races. But it turns out that they have a pick five, all stakes pick five, starting in the fifth race. And the fifth race is the grade one Madison Stakes. It's seven furlongs on the dirt, purse of 250000 for fillies and mares, four-year-olds and up. And David, as our guest, will have you get us started. Well, I'm kind of ashamed to start by picking a favorite, but uh, I just think Guarana, who's even money on the morning line here, she's just going to be tough to beat. Um, she got the perfect kind of prep last time at Churchill Downs, winning very easily in the slop. Uh, she earned a fast speed figure for that return. And obviously, we know what she did as a three-year-old. I don't have to rehash all of that. She was one of the best three-year-old fillies from last year. I think seven furlongs is the perfect distance for her. I just think she's probably going to win this race at a short price. I don't really have a clever take on this one. All right, Chris, what did you think? Yeah, I, I mean, Guarana looks really tough. Um, but if anybody's going to beat her, it's going to be Chris. Chris, what do you think? <laughs> well, I first of all, I want to second what Dave. Everything you said is true. And Guarana, to me, you know, she's clearly the most likely winner. But there are a couple reasons why she's not invincible in here. Uh, partly... She is the fastest horse, but her her figures don't really lay over the field. And depending on what figures you look at, she's even she's really not any faster than some of the others in here. But she has more upside. And you know, if you project off what she ran last year as a three-year-old, especially early in the year, you'd expect her. You know, she could be sitting on a monster race here. And it seems like they've decided they're going to keep her around one turn this year, maybe, um, based on they're running her back in her second start of the year sprinting, which, you know, I think will benefit her as well. They tried to stretch her out more last year. So, I mean, all those are positives, but she doesn't lay over the field. And, you know, for a, a long shot, those are the kind of horses I like to play that I project to run, you know, an all-time you know, personal best race. Uh, second off a layoff as a four-year-old, but at, for a heavy favorite, you know, to me, that's not the kind of horse I'm looking at, even though, you know, she very well, well likely could win. So, and these seven furlong distances, I usually try to play either the engine or the caboose. Um, sometimes they let them go slow early because everybody's afraid of, 
they might not be able to get that seven furlongs if they push too hard too early. And then other times when they do go fast, that extra furlong can really take its toll on the front runners. And so you can have a horse come swoop over the top and win like Bell's the one did last time she ran. Um, although that wasn't seven furlongs. Uh, so for me, you know, the engine in this race is Amy's challenge. She's been a little disappointing this year, but she has a lot of talent. She drew a good post. They may let her go with Mia Mischief and Garana might be perfectly content just to, you know, sit off her and let her set the early pace. And I think if they let her go slow enough early um, and maybe let her get a little separation at some point in the race, she could get brave. She ran a really nice race in this race last year, didn't win, but came close. It wasn't as tough a field, but she's a year older and potentially could run even better if she gets the trip. Uh, and she gets a great rider switch to Joel Rosario, who basically, to me, you know, he's he likes to either go right to the front or drop way back, and clearly he's going to go to the front with her. He's a really strong finisher. I think he is probably the best finisher in racing. And to me, he's the closest thing to Lafitte Pinkai in the current riding colony. And so I think Amy's challenge is, is a possibility here at a price to maybe wire the field although Garana is the one to beat. There's another horse I kind of like a little here, but I don't want to talk over Scott's opinion, and he may like that horse as well. So for me, I'll say Amy's Challenge is a possible price play um, with Garana as the one to beat. Well, I absolutely agree that Amy's Challenge will likely get the lead and um, have it relatively easily. She is 0 for 4 at the distance, so that is one reason to... Um, uh, approach her with caution. Um, now, I think Guarana looks really, really good. And you know, when I wrote my notes, I said, "Can she? Is she this good? I mean, like, is she like? Can she improve on all, all her numbers, which have all been good races? And she might. She's a, she's by Ghost Zapper, and she's just she's always been fast. Uh, but she's. Uh, I agree with Chris, at least on the figs I'm looking at. Um, a number of horses have run at least as fast as her. And uh, I'm just going to choose one that I, I like the look of. I, I just kind of like, I like the look of the line and that's Sally's Curlin. Um, so I wouldn't single Guarana. I would, I would say, I would say that, I mean, maybe wait a pick five with a little bit more on Guarana, but I would include Sally's Curlin because uh, she's actually run a slightly faster fig in her last race than Guarana's ever run. And she's, She's had time since that race. You know they've had this race on her radar. I haven't read about it. I haven't read like the DRF yet, but she's fast. And, and she actually, she got really good when they put on blinkers. So like her, her figures noticeably increased and she won her debut. You know, she, she won her debut. She won her uh, first race in blinkers and she's just been um, cranking out some pretty good races since. So I, I I don't see why she shouldn't be included. Um, and she's, I think, 10 to one on the morning line. So, uh, you know, there is the concern about there not being enough pace. And there, a lot of these horses are closers. But she has plenty of time since that race. And um, I'm inclined to, just because I think Guarana is going to be so ridiculously overbet, I'm inclined to use the four horses that, uh, that, 
that I th- three other horses besides Gorana that have run as fast as her. And that would be Sally's Curlin, Mia Mischief, and Bell's the One. And Bell's the One, she just ran a huge number, but she has she's paired up big numbers before. So uh so so I would use those those three besides Guarana. <laughs> so Dave, jump back in if you have uh any other um comments or opinions. I mean, my I'm not going to talk anybody off a long shot in any race, especially when there's going to be a heavy favorite like Guarana. The one comment I will make, um, you both referenced Guarana not having a real speed figure edge over this field. And the one um, response to that that I that I want to, to lodge is that um, if you're not looking at pace based numbers with Guarana, I think you're missing something because and, and I <laughs> I'm going to just shamelessly promote what Craig does um, with the time form US speed figures where he obviously takes pace into account because Guarana ran two races last year in the Acorn and the Cotillion where pace had a significant impact on the speed figures of that those races and in the the um, the Acorn, Acorn, uh, Time Form US gave Guarana a 125 in the Cotillion a 128 because both of those races featured extremely fast early paces that she was not very far off of. And based on those numbers, Guarana does have a significant speed figure edge over this field in the range of five to 10 points. Uh, so I'm really weighting those numbers more heavily than a final time based number for Guarana. And I, I do think she's got a significant edge over this field. Again, I'm talking up a favorite, um, but if I'm thinking about multi-race wagers this would be a race where i do want to lean on the favorite because i want to spread more in some other races that's a really good point i i and and also to add to that those races were around two turns and i'm not convinced she's better you know she might be a one-turn horse i hate to use that term but um you know the fact that they're keeping her at shorter distances this year may reflect that they think she'll do better at those shorter distances so not only were they you know you can bump her times up based on pace but uh you know the distance might not have been ideal for her as well so i think she is really strong it's just especially on this show we're we're trying to beat these horses but like you said uh you know she is the one to beat i i did want to jump in on Scott with Scally's Curlin because that was the other horse I like and I, that's why I didn't want to say anything because I thought Scott might be on her as well. Um, in addition to her being much of improves when they added blinkers, you know, she might be the proverbial one turn horse. If you look at her races going one turn, you know, her last four or five races going one turn, she's just demolished the field in every start. The, the fields weren't as tough as this one, but She's been pretty invincible going at a mile or seven furlongs around one turn. All her races beyond that have been, um, you know, not as good. Uh, In fact, she's been off the board in all of those, except I think once she ran third by eight. And that was back before the blinkers. But so I think she's clearly better going around one turn. Seven furlongs should be, you know, within her scope. That's what she ran last time. They finally kept her sprinting. Um, so with the blinker sprinting, I think Sally's curling is a really good horse. Um, the, my concern is the pace, the setup. But if um, they decide, you know, to push Amy's challenge early with Mia Mischief and Gorana uh, and the pace cooks up a little bit, that last furlong could start to test them. And to me, Sally's curling uh, might really, well, she will be rolling late and, you know, might be able to, if not win, 
maybe she gets up for second behind Garana. I, I kind of like her a little better than Bell's the one, although because Bell's the one was probably time to play her was last time. But, you know, Sally's Curlin is very interesting as a sprinter, a one-term horse with the blinkers. She's been a monster. So it'll be interesting to see what she does in here. I think she could be value as well. Um, and she's she'll be on the caboose. And like I said, I like to either be on the engine or the caboose in this kind of a race. And she's five for her last five at one turn, uh, which I, I just counted while while you were talking. So that's a really good point. I mean, um, I, I haven't even looked at the figures in terms of I knew that they were uh, at least a mile most of those races, but I didn't realize that the, the, she is a, kind of a one turn specialist. So that wraps up the fifth race. Let's go to the sixth. It's the Shaker Town. It's a grade two, five and a half furlongs on turf, purse of 150,000 for three year olds and up. And we'll have Chris get us started on this one. Wow, this is a really fun race. I mean, I think we'll have some fun with this one. Really deep field, uh, quality field. Just, I, I, I'm, I really like this race. Unfortunately, there's three or four horses in here that I had tabbed as possible plays next back next time they ran. And of course, they're all in the same race. Um, but this is, to me, the spread leg in the pick five. So it could chalk out. Uh, in the other races, for sure. This is the one where you have the best chance of catching a price, and you could get a really big price depending on how they play this race. I'll be kind of interested to see what David thinks about uh, the morning line, and is, does he see any horses in here that, in particular that might go off at higher or lower than their price at the morning line? Um, but, you know, I, there's a lot of ways you could go in here. I'll, I will for my pod pick, I'll go for the, the crazy long shot. And that's the 12 Cruz, who I actually picked to win his last race. Uh, it was only a couple weeks ago. Um, I really like this horse. He His debut was actually at Keeneland going at this distance on the turf. And he just won impressively on his debut as a two-year-old. So to me, that always stamps him as, as a good horse. And he hasn't ever really been able to live up to that promise yet. He's had several long layoffs. So he has some physical problems. They tried to stretch him out. I think now they've decided he's a sprinter. They gilded him before his last race, which was off his first off a long layoff. I liked him in there. He took a lot of money, more than I thought he would. And he just had a miserable trip. He bounced off the hedge and pretty much lost all chance at that point. He was starting to roll then. Um, he did gallop out really strong at the end, which tells me there was a lot in the tank there. Um, and now, you know, he, he's second off the layoff. They brought him back quickly, which I like. And, you know, he's 50 to one on the morning line. Um, I don't know if he'll be 50 to one, although, it, like I said, this morning, this race is kind of crazy wide open, but he definitely will be a big price. And if you project improvement off his two-year-old race race now as a four-year-old he could run fast enough to win this if you just look at the numbers out of not in that context it looks like he has absolutely no chance he's just not fast enough and you know he may run a career best race and, and still finish off the board in here because it really is a quality field but to me this is a wide open race and if he can get a trip 
Um, Corey Lannery is pretty good. You, know, you roll the dice with him. Last time it came up snake eyes when he tried to come up the rail. But, you know, he he's good at finding trips in these kind of races. And the Keeneland turf sprints, they even though it's only five and a half furlongs, closers do pretty well in these races. So, you know, I, I'm going to pick Cruz as one of several that I will use in the pick five. I will go pretty deep in this race. Um, but he's the one that could really blow it up at a big price. Um, I could talk about several others in here, but I'll turn it over to David and Scott, and then I can chime in if you guys fail to mention a couple of the other horses that I like in here that might be a price. So number 12, Carews, I hope, can Carews pass them all late and get into the winner circle. So uh, just one, another, you know, a cautionary note on Carews, who I'm sure that not not everybody's running to add him to their ticket but he is in the 12 hole so not only does he have to have that improvement but the 12 hole could be uh could give him a wide trip david what did you think here well since i really went uh pretty prominently towards guarana and the madison i feel like i've got a license to spread a bit more in this race and i i don't have a strong opinion on one horse in this race this definitely would be one where i try to use a number of them in uh, like a pick five sequence and and just try to survive this race to get on to some opinions later uh as for the way that it's going to be bet um i do think that wild man jack and bound for nowhere are probably going to be the two favorites um both of those horses can win. I'm not against them. I would prefer Bound for Nowhere. Um, he's kind of one of these horses that runs by appointment with a lot of layoff lines in his PPs. Uh, but he just seems to keep coming back as the same horse every single time. And he obviously runs well at Keeneland. So I just think Bound for Nowhere is going to be tough in this race. I do kind of wonder why Wesley Ward didn't take him to Royal Ascot because he had mentioned this horse as one that was pointing for that meet. And it seems like there's a gap in his works where he didn't go over there. So I just wonder if there was a set back with this horse's preparation uh but the fact that he's running here is probably a good sign so i mean bound for nowhere of the favorites he'd be the one that i would lean most heavily on and then you've got a bunch of horses that are going to be bigger prices um you know in the six to 20 30 50 to one range um Carews would not be one of the ones that I would use. I thought he's one of the horses that probably should be 50 to one in this race, but that's just my opinion. Um as for those horses kind of that are going to be in that second tier price range, um, I would look at ones like Extravagant Kid, Real News, Texas Wedge, Fastbow, Totally Boss. Um, of those big prices, I'd probably be most interested in Real News offering some value. Uh, he's a horse who's coming out of an allowance race with Churchill Downs, and a few of these are coming out of these allowance optional claiming races that were run during the Churchill Downs meet. And I don't think all of those races are created equal. For instance, the race that Carews is coming out of, that well-abled one, I thought that was the weaker of the um, allowance races that we saw be run at Churchill, whereas the really strong one was the one that Real News comes out of. That was won by Extravagant Kid, where Leinster was second. Um, there was an incident heading into the far turn of that race where a horse sort of took up and it caused the chain reaction where Real News had to steady pretty badly into the turn. Totally Boss was also compromised during that trouble. Um, but I thought Real News actually got on track again in the stretch and was pretty game to get up for fourth in that spot. That was only five furlongs. I 
think Real News is really more of a five and a half furlong kind of turf sprinter. Maybe he even wants a bit longer than that, but five and a half is definitely better than five for him. And if there's a bit of pace up front in this race, he just feels like one of these horses that won't be that far off the pace that can make a late run and perhaps capitalize from his in- inside post position. I don't know if we're going to get 15 to one on him, but if I had to sort of make a top pick in this race, um, it would be him just because he's going to offer some value. But as I said, this is a race where I would definitely want to spread in multi-race sequences. All right. Well, that's really interesting about uh, real news. And I'm actually going to be watching that race because the horse that I'm most interested in is from the same race, I guess. Uh, totally boss. He's second off a layoff. He always needs one. And, you know, I've seen the trouble line. It says he uh, took up abruptly in that last race and I have not watched the race, but even, you know, just assuming that that was pretty bad and based on his numbers from last year, I, he's, he's, he's clearly my play in the race. Uh, he, he, he always runs better second off layoff and maybe they forget about him in this big field and he goes off at eight to one. Um, so that's, that's, that's all I got on him. I would also use a couple others and I, I wouldn't discount any of the horses that you guys mentioned, but, um, and I agree it's a, it's a deep leg. A couple of horses I'm interested in though. One is tiger blood who is only slightly slower than the fastest ones here. And he's got a new trainer, Mike maker. He's working out better than he has in a long time. And he could wire them here in a race that doesn't have that much speed. He's he's got a wide post, but that could work out to his advantage because he may get a three wide trip and and like be in the clear. So I would use him, and I would also use without uh, without getting into detail. I would also use Extravagant Kid and Texas Wedge for sure. Um, and and I'll pass back to Chris because I, I know you have some uh, some other horses you like. Um. Yeah. I. I think like you all both said, you can make a case for Minion here. I, I really like Totally Boss as well. If you watch the replay, he lost all chance. I mean, Real News t- sort of, I thought Real News caused the problem, but maybe he was reacting to something. Um, some reason, Real News kind of took up, lost his action, and then backed into Totally Boss, who completely took up. So, you know, that's a complete toss, that race for him. And he got really good last year. And um, uh, has had had a terrible trip in the Breeders' Cup sprint, too. So his last two races, he's had real legitimate excuses where he had absolutely no chance. And prior to that, he had gotten really good over the summer last year. And Rusty Arnold does well in Kentucky and at Keeneland. So, you know, to me, that horse is coming out of that that race that David talked about as being a pretty salty race at, at Churchill. So I with you there. The one horse that there are two horses that neither of you mentioned that I like. So we, by the time we're done, we'll have caught them all, which is not surprising. This race is one is seven fast boat. Who's fast West and Joe Sharp. Um, as, as long as the horse, the course isn't soft, this horse doesn't seem to like the soft going, but he's run some really fast races. He comes off a really nice race in his last and, um, you know, I'm always a little nervous when they come off a big race like that, but you know, he certainly fits in here. I don't think you can leave him out. And then the other one, if he draws it into the race, the 15 horse nitrous is interesting to me because, um, first of all, if he draws in, he might, might get a little bit of that off the AE 
boost in the odds, and he's already 20 to 1 in the morning line. He's breeding says that he can run on turf. They've tried him a couple times. He hasn't done that well, but especially on the dam side, he's got some turf breeding, and tappets can usually run on turf as well. And I really liked his first race as a four-year-old this year. I thought he was sitting on a big race last time, but I think maybe the sloppy track um, didn't work in his favor. And now they put him back on the turf here. And I just think it's interesting that he could come really come flying late. He drew an outside post. So you don't have to worry about horses cutting over in front of him. And so he should be able to work his own trip from there. And uh, he might be really flying late and get overlooked. Um, at a big price. So if nitrous draws in, um, I think he's kind of interesting. Um, but as you can see, this is a really wide open race. This is where you spread and you just got to hope that like bound for nowhere or wild man, Jack don't win because then you'll have spread and, and chalked out. And, and that could be a pretty disappointing pick five um, wild man, Jack. I don't like him at all in here. But I definitely think Bound for Nowhere is one that you have to use and wouldn't be surprised if he won it. So it's kind of what I've got for this race. I just have some notes on some horses that you mentioned that I just want to mention before or that I just want to uh, get in there before we wrap up this race. Uh, I gave a long look to to Tiger Blood, who, who Scott mentioned uh, as possibly the speed in here that could wire the field. And I just want to say I looked up Mike Maker's stats off the claimant formulator, which I like to do. And I was just shocked because you think of Mike Maker as being so good off the claim. But first off the claim in five and five and a half furlong turf sprints, he's two for 33 over the past five years. That's just 6% with a 56 cent ROI. So he just doesn't win off the claim in these turf sprints. Um, I found that to be very surprising because I didn't think the numbers were that bad. Uh, but he'll be a price in this race. So I mean, I wouldn't just talk you off because of that one trainer stat. Um, Fast Boat, uh, his last race was outstanding. If he runs that race back, he's just going to beat this field. Uh, I mean, nobody can run a race like that in here. Um, I just don't know where it came from. That was not the fast boat that we're used to seeing because I don't think the fast boat that we were seeing in uh, you know, 2018 and 2019 would be really competitive in this race. I just I don't know where that last race of Churchill came from, and I'm scared that he can repeat it. I just don't trust he can. Uh, the one final note I have is on Wild Man Jack. Um Craig, who I do the podcast with, um, has talked a lot about these five and a half furlong turf sprints in Santa Anita and the fact that those races uh, he's uncovered are not really five and a half furlongs. They're actually run at a distance that's shorter than five and a half furlongs. And there have been a lot of timing issues in races there that I think the track is not really acknowledging at this point. Um, and that's a speed figure, the Wildman Jack Daytona, where the time is definitely faster than what it actually was if you time it from video. And I think the speed figures based on that race are all too high and that's one that's going to have to be adjusted in the future so just be aware of that okay well um we did spend a lot of time on that race and chris wants to spend more no that's okay we can move on uh you won't spend a lot of time on that race (laughs) (laughs) all right let's uh let's move to the seventh race and um and i appreciate that uh i i get that kind of info from you and Craig on your show all the time about uh, weird times and uh, speed figures being wonky because of it. And uh, a, a perfect example is when when Craig picked, uh, I think it was hail to the something. It was a turf horse for Bill Mott that ran uh, the week that he was on two weeks ago. 
and uh, uh, the figures looked a little wonky. And he picked the horse because he liked the horse and w- and was discounting the the the, the dirt figs. And uh, he he was right. Got the horse home at like eleven to one. So we'll go to the seventh race at Keeneland. It's the Grade One Central Bank Ashland Stakes, a mile and a sixteenth on dirt, purse of four hundred thousand for three-year-old fillies, six-horse field. What did you think here, David? So, I mean, based on prior performances, I think you just have to consider Venetian Harbor way the horse to beat. And if you're going to try to take a shot against her, I think you just have to be of the opinion that she's not really a two-term dirt router. Uh, She's got a ton of speed. She's the kind of horse that likes to run off a little bit early in her races. She can be hard for her riders to control. Uh, We'll see if Joel Rosario can rein her in a little bit better than Flavian Pratt could in her prior races. Um, But if you're against her in here, and I'm not way against her, I am going to pick somebody else on top in this race. I think you just have to be kind of of that opinion. Um, I'm going to land on Bonnie South here. Uh, I know she's a little bit slower than some of the main contenders. I just liked the way that she was progressing over the winter for Brad Cox. And it seems like they probably planned after that Fairgrounds Oaks, once all of this COVID-19 news started coming out, they probably just said, all right, our ultimately ultimate goal is the Kentucky Oaks. We're going to plan to give her a bit of a layoff now. We'll get a couple of preps into her before the Kentucky Oaks later in the year. So it seems like based on her workout tab, that they just kind of backed off her at that point. And Brad Cox has now had plenty of time to slowly work her back up to fitness for this Ashland. Uh, she's got a really nice, steady, fast series of workouts coming into this race. So I think we're very likely to see a forward move from Bonnie South in here now that she's had some added time to mature. And the real question for her is, is she going to get enough pace to close into because she just is one of these one-run one closers that's going to need some help up front. And as a response to that, I would say, you know, Venetian Harbor, any race that she's in is liable to feature a fast pace because she's just one of these horses that likes to go fast up front. And I also think the two horses towards the outside could press the pace a bit. I mean, speech is definitely not slow. And tonal is shape. She's got blinkers on for the first time. And if you watched her one workout on XBTV where she wore the blinkers, that June 28th work where she went 45 and one, uh, she's probably going to show speed with the blinkers based on that workout because she was pretty fired up there. So I think there could be enough pace in this race to set up Bonnie South's late run. Well, I always like to say uh, ignore a, an improving Brad Cox horse at your own risk. Chris, what did you think? I'm pretty much in total agreement with everything that David said. Um, uh, Venetian Harbor looks tough, but the question is, can she you know, repeat or improve off what she's had? And you know, what sort of two-turn horse is she? This is, uh, and she will get some pace pressure, I think, or at least some attempted pace pressure. I'll tell you though, some of these workouts prior to this race have been pretty impressive. Like David said, that toneless shape workout was really (laughs) something. Um, And speech has been working fast. Bonnie South has been working fast. Um, These are fast horses, Uh, but it does seem like Bonnie South is the, is sort of the upside horse that is the one horse that will be sitting off. And if the other ones all chase Venetian Harbor, Seems like she can pick up the pieces, even if she doesn't pass Venetian Harbor. She seems like the one that could at least run second in here. Um, so I'm kind of with David. Uh, Venetian Harbor is the one to beat. And Bonnie South seems like the, you know, the possible value play, depending on how they bet the race. Well, I have to agree with both of you gentlemen that Bonnie South is, is 
a, a definite use. And I only, I only settled on tonalist shape just because there's something I like about her line. Um, and I still have to watch replays. And that's a good point about that fast workout being with blinkers, because if she runs her brains out, she's not going to have anything left for the stretch if she runs her brains out early. Um, but I, I, I do think she's a pretty impressive horse. She's circling back to her two-year-old top, uh, which came late in her two-year-old year, so I don't mind her having not gotten back to her two-year-old top. Um, she's six to one. Maybe she gets ignored. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's only a six-horse field. But uh, I'm going to make her my top pick, but then uh, clarify that Bonnie South is absolute must-use as well. And I have a hard time not using Venetian Harbor. There's something about her that I don't like, but I haven't put my finger on it yet. So uh, I'm going to look for a way to beat her, but I may just end up including her because I've got a, a kind of pricey single later in the sequence. Anything else to add, David, on that one? No, I mean, I, just to kind of play off what Scott said, I think the thing that you really can't put your finger on with Venetian Harbor is that I believe she's a sprinter miler and she just has the raw talent that she was able to finish second in that very fast fantasy going a mile in the 16th. I don't think she's really cut out to be a Kentucky Oaks horse. So while she's the most naturally gifted horse in this race, I just think at some point if they press on in these two turn dirt routes, she's going to be exposed at some point. So that's just my take on Venetian Harbor. I'm not going to be shocked if she wins this race. I just think she's going to be getting a little leg weary at the end. Yeah, a couple a couple of things to note on Venetian Harbor that I I I hadn't looked at my notes before I spoke, but uh, she ran a six furlong workout last of one ten and three, and that's pretty fast for a workout for a filly. Uh, and her mother was her dam was also a sprinter. She she never even routed, and her sibling one sibling also never routed. So so that's a uh, you know that. That may be the reason, right? Uh, I, I, I like that hypothesis. All right. I think All right. we covered that one. All right. Cool. Great. So let's move to the eighth race, which is uh, it's going to be one heck of a race. I'm really looking forward to watching it. It's the Coolmore Jenny Wiley, a grade one mile and a 16th on turf with a purse of 350000 for Phillies and Mares, four-year-old and up. And Chris, let's have you start this one. Well, rushing fall, the four horse will be the heavy favorite, and she probably deserves to be the favorite. Comes in second off a layoff with a nice prep. She's a really nice horse. But again, sort of we've said this, I think, a few other races. To me, her speed figures don't lay over this field. And she's actually lost or finished behind a couple of the horses in this race. So I don't think she's a lock by any means. Um, and I think she also is going to get, you know, a challenge early on from the six horse, Jolie Olympica. So it's not like she's going to control the early pace. She doesn't have to have the lead, but, um, you know, I don't think she's going to have it all her own way. And I think her best races have been when she's on the lead. So, you know, to me, she's beatable, although she's the most likely winner. The horse I probably like the most in here to beat her would be the two-horse Juliet Foxtrot, who um, her last race was a little bit disappointing. But if you look at um, 
it, the race was kind of, she was kind of against the flow. She was a little bit keen early off the bench. And Brad Cox, his, he's a great trainer, but his turf route layoff numbers aren't that great. So I think she probably needed that race. She got a little tired at the end. Um, but that should set her up for her best effort in here. And her stablemate, Bo Recall, who, who finished behind her in that race, came back and ran much better second off a layoff in New York, I think it was last weekend. So I'd expect the same kind of improvement in here. Luis Saez gets the mount, which is interesting. Um, he's a good rider. I think ideally they will tuck her in behind Rushing Fall and Jolie Olympic and she could kind of trip out and if that happens you know i think she could be really tough so there's some you can make a case for quite a few others it's a really good race but i'll i'll pick as a pod pick here the two horse juliet foxtrot all right beating the heavy favorite rushing fall who probably goes off lower than six to five david what did you think here well, Chris and I have landed on the same alternative to rushing fall. Uh, I would also pick Juliet Foxtrot in this race. I don't have a whole lot to add. Um, she ran really well in some races last year. I am a little concerned that she might be best at the flat mile, and a mile on the 16th is just pushing her a little bit beyond her stamina uh, capabilities. Uh, but I think the Minjulip, it's not really a true indication of where she's at. That was a 14-horse field where there was just no real speed, and she just kind of ended up on the lead from the rail because she has tactical speed and nobody else wanted to go early. And then Country, uh, country uh, what's her name, uh, Mitchell Road, ended up pressing her a little bit and going on with it. And they ended up going a little bit faster than maybe you would have thought before the race, and it just kind of fell apart at the end. That Minjulip was a race that was really dominated by closers. So I think Julie at Foxtrot can move forward off of that. Uh, what Chris said about the trip in this race, I totally agree with. I think she's going to sit a great trip, just probably third slotted in behind those two speeds. And I think she's good enough to uh, at least get on terms with Rushing Fall. And she's going to be a much bigger price because Rushing Fall, um, she's a really nice horse. She's a wind machine. Uh, I think she's a little overrated, though. Um, She's gotten very good trips in most of the races where she's earned these big speed figures and been successful. She was a little exposed last year in the First Lady when they tried out some different tactics, taking her far off a fast pace. She wasn't effective using that style. Uh, she's really most effective these days when she gets to control the pace up front, and I'm not sure that's going to be the case with Jolie Olympica in this race. And Russian Falls Bogey last time. It was fine. I know the speed figure came up very fast. In my opinion, the speed figures for that race are just a little too fast. I don't think horses are running back to them. Uh, so in my opinion, Rushing Fall is going to have to step forward off that race to beat this tougher field. And I just don't really want her at a very short price. And Julie Olympica, the other favorite, she's just a horse I don't I don't get at all. Um, her Buena Vista, her one race around two turns in this country, it makes her like a 10 to one shot in this race. And people, I think, are just going uh, overboard on her five and a half furlong races as some kind of indicator that she can be a grade one turf router. I don't see that. And I've got some real doubts about the speed figure, especially of her Monrovia, given those issues I talked about with the five and a half furlong timing at Santa Anita. So I just don't. I don't see Jolie Olympic as being one of the favorites in this race. Um, you know, maybe she'll step forward here in her second attempt going long in this country. Uh, but uh, I wanted to go in a different direction. I just think Juliet Foxtrot is the right horse to take as an alternative. All right. Well, I'm going to pile on and we're going to have a rare triple barreled pick podcast pick in 
Juliet Foxtrot. Uh, we we talked about her on her on when the mint julep. We talked about that race on the pod, and I had noted that in an interview, Brad Cox said this is a good place to get started. He didn't say she's ready to win, and and, and he said the same thing about um, Bo Recall. He said this is a, a good place to get started. So clearly, that was not meant to be the the focus. And because Brad Cox does really well second off a layoff, I mean, you know, he's not prepping her in a grade one for something else. So this is it. And she's run well against Basilica and um, I think Uni. Uh, her, her, her running lines are really great. My only question is what price is she actually going to be? Because I find it hard to believe that she'll, she's going to go from eight to five to eight to one in this race. And especially since we uh, are all picking her, if that's the case and she gets picked by a lot of other um, sort of podcaster, public handicapper, TV type people, uh, she's going to be much lower than that eight to one. I do think that rushing fall looks really, really good though. So I, I would just do, I would go too deep in this race. I think rushing fall will be hard to beat. She she was fast as a two-year-old. She's four for five at Keeneland. She's three for four at the distance. She doesn't have to have the lead. Yes, it's better if she has the lead, but she doesn't have to have it if if uh, somebody decides to go with her. So like I, I would absolutely include rushing fall. I wouldn't try to beat her, but I will be using Juliet Foxtrot because I agree with Chris. She's not she's a, almost as fast as rushing fall. And if you believe the there's a question on the speed figures for the last race on rushing fall, like David has, then she's uh, as fast as rushing fall. So the, those two for me. Wow. So we all are on the same horse that let's hope we're right. Because I think beating rushing fall could, you know, make the pick five um, because she'll probably will be odds on at least. So that would be a nice way to finish off that pick five. Well, there's one more leg. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's some little race called the Bluegrass we haven't talked about yet. That's right. Okay. Speaking of the fifth leg, uh, it's the ninth race. It's the grade two Toyota Bluegrass. It's a mile and an eighth under, purse of 600000 for three-year-olds. And we'll start with David here. This is a pretty fascinating race. Uh, it, it's one where... I think we're familiar with a lot of these horses by this point because we've gone through an entire Derby trail and now the post Derby trail as we prepare for the rescheduled Kentucky Derby. Uh, so we know a lot of these horses pretty well at this point. And personally, I don't feel like I love anybody in this field. Um, so I kind of find myself just shopping around for who I think is going to be the best price of the horses that for me are palatable. Uh, Swiss Skydiver as the favorite. Sure. I mean, she's got the best speed figures. I'm a little surprised that they're trying to make her into a Kentucky Derby horse. I, or if that's what they're doing in this race, I don't really know. Um, okay. I mean, it's not like, um, the top of the three-year-old Colt division is that formidable at this point. So, I mean, maybe they're going to take a shot. She can win this race. I don't know if I really think she's going to be best going a mile and an eighth. Um, I'm not going to be shocked if she does well here. I, she just, I don't want to pick a favorite in a race that I think is this wide open. Um, I kind of feel the same way about Art Collector, who was uh, very impressive winning that optional claimer at Churchill last time. That just, 
that was just a race where he got an absolutely perfect trip, setting a slow pace, and I, I just can't bet him off that kind of speed figure earned in the way that he got it, given that he's going to get a completely different kind of trip here. So as I was saying, I want to shop for prices in this race, and the two horses that would interest me the most are uh, the number 12 Enforceable, who would be my top pick, and the number 8 Basin, who I'm also going to use. Um, Enforceable is coming off a layoff. Um, he has not run quite fast enough to beat a field like this at this point in time, uh, but he's had plenty of time to mature since early in the year. He strikes me as one of these horses that's going to continue getting better over time. I know he's more experienced than some other members of his field, but he still feels like one that's figuring out the game. He's going to get more pace to close into than he did really in either of those last two starts at the fairgrounds, the Risen Star and the Louisiana Derby. And I like this switch to Joel Rosario with him. He's a horse who has a late run that can be a little difficult to time because he gets uh, a little bit headstrong midway through his races. Julian Leperu has either moved too late or too soon with him in some starts. So I'm hoping Joel Rosario can sort of get him to settle down early in the race and make that final push towards the front end at the end of the race at the right time and and uh, get past horses like Swiss Skydiver and Art Collector. Uh, if he's around 10 to 1 like he is in the morning line, I think that's fair enough on a horse like Enforceable. And Basin, we'll see if he wants to go a mile and an eighth. Uh, but I just like his races so far as a three-year-old. I think he's had subtle trips in them. Um, the Rebel, he kind of got caught in traffic at the quarter pole. The Oaklawn Stakes, he got shuffled back around the far turn and actually finished up well to be fourth that day. And the Arkansas Derby, some might point to that race and say it's an indicator he doesn't really want to go a mile and an eighth. I just think it's really hard to go chasing a horse like Charlatan and get turned away by a horse like that because Charlatan was just so much superior to that field. But I thought Basin was still pretty game to hold on for a second there. And that uh, a repeat of that race, I think it puts him in the mix here. So um, I would focus on those two, but kind of spreading more if I get alive this far in a multi-race sequence. Okay, a note to add on Enforceable. Notably faster works coming into this race, faster than he's ever run before. Chris, where did you land? Well, I agree with David that Basin and Enforceable are, are contenders in here, but I have a difference of opinion with him on Art Collector. I really like Art Collector. I think he's a standout in here for a couple of reasons. I agree his last race, you know, he kind of had things his own way, but he just went to the lead because it was a small field and there wasn't any pace setters and he, and he didn't go that fast, which I think I kind of like horses who can go on the lead and then just relax and then burst home the way he did. And in fact, I do a, a little mathematical model where I project out what uh, these three-year-olds in the spring would run going a mile and a quarter based on their shorter races. Typically, I like to use the mile and eighth races because you don't have to project as far. Um, it's probably not as valuable a tool this year because of the strange scheduling of the derby but um art collector if you project out his last race it's the fastest race so far this year of any of the three-year-old preps faster than nadal run ran faster than even gamin's race um and that that takes into account how i'm not going to go into details but to me it's been a useful tool so to me he's a legitimate horse and i think he's really he's incredibly versatile if you look at his form i mean he's one on the lead, he's with slow paces. He's come from off the pace in fast pace races. He's won sprinting, he's won routing, he's won on turf, he's won on dirt, he's won on the sloppy track. He just he's a win machine on anything, and he's really gotten good. And 
to me, he broke his maiden on the turf, and he's by Bernardini, who's just an absolutely horrible turf sire. So to me, that just tells you that on dirt, this horse could be something special. So I just really like him a lot in here. I think he's going to run, and he's got the tactical speed where they can put him wherever they need to. Um, And I think he'll be sitting forwardly placed, but not on the lead. And I I just expect him to run really big. So for me, Art Collector is going to be a strong A. I don't know if I'll make him an ice cold single in the pick five, um, but he's definitely where most of my money will go. And I probably will include the two that David mentioned and one other horse, but I, I'll wait on that because that might be the horse that, that Scott likes. Um, but I'm really high on Art Collector, the three horse in here. All right. A lot of praise for Art Collector. And uh, you make a good point. And his figures are, are great. And the interesting thing is he's third. It's his third race. And I really like that angle, third race uh, off a layoff. For a three-year-old or at almost any age, but but you know, I was thinking about singling a horse in here, but now I I can't do it. I have to include our collector. Um, the horse that I like the most, my top pick, is Man in the Can. Uh, his figures don't look very fast on buyer, uh, but somehow he got a really nice fig uh, on the sheets in his last race, and it's as fast as our collector and as fast as anybody in this race. Uh, I watched his last race, and he broke from the outside, which uh, it was a pretty big field. It was a 12-horse field. He broke from the outside, and what was interesting is he he got positioned really well. I mean, he jumped out of the gate pretty fast. To me, that means like he's he's manipulable. You know, he's flexible, and he got good position. And then he just sat a chilly trip, where he got a perfect trip because he was able to and. Tyler Gaffalione is perfect jockey for this horse. He he's he he can navigate sometimes, you know, if, if it was a speed horse, maybe you'd be a little worried about it. But but he's the type of horse that Tyler Gaffalione excels on. And uh he in his last race, he sat chilly, he moved when necessary, he executed everything to plan, and he galloped out well. And he got that fig. Now, uh, you know, there's some people who look, use those figs, and so he's probably gonna get some play. Maybe he's lower than 10 to 1. But he also, since that last race, has his best, fastest five furlong workout. And, 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 and what's most important for me is that he's improved in every race. And when you have a horse that's a price that has improved every race, you have to play him because he's likely to continue improving. Now, if, if he was a favorite, then you don't play him because it doesn't matter it's not even worth it, but as a price, uh, he's a horse that I have to use. So, uh, so that's the horse that I like. Uh, Chris talked me into Art Collector, and I, I agree with you, David, one hundred percent on Enforceable. Uh, I actually would use him underneath. I don't know if he'll be fast enough to win, but he he's a good horse. And uh, one other horse that I'll just mention as a possible use underneath is Attachment Rate. Uh, I never really liked him, but there's something about his last race that I kind of liked and I have to, I, I don't remember what it was and I have to watch the replay. I didn't get a chance to watch the replay on him. Uh, but that's a horse that could possibly blow up the, the super. Um, and I'll return it to you guys. 
I would just add with Art Collector, I, I, I'm, I'm a little against him in here, based mostly on the fact that I think he's going to be among the favorites in this race. Um, I, I don't really disagree with anything Chris said. I mean, he does seem like he's heading in the right direction, and he just appears to have turned a corner as a three-year-old, and his last race was legitimately fast. If he runs that speed figure back, he's probably going to beat even Swiss Skydiver. Um, it's just, I, I have trouble trusting figures like that um experience having experience you know um assessing these horses who run a huge figure out of nowhere with perfect circumstances it really mo most often is more about the circumstances than the fact that the horse improved when they are in figures like that and art collector i think that race worked out so well for him because you know you talked earlier in the podcast where we started handicapping about horses that move a certain way and art collector has this really beautiful like floating stride on him that actually doesn't surprise me that much they tried him on the turf even though he is a son of bernardini because he moves like a turf horse and when you watch him in the stretch of that churchill race last time um he finished up the race like a turf horse where he was able to produce a turn of foot and close off his own fractions and that's really useful on the turf and it made him so dangerous against that small field in an optional claiming race um i don't know if those attributes are going to come in as handy in this bluegrass where he's probably not going to make the front. He's probably going to be far off the lead, uh, you know, using the kind of running style that he did in his sprint races earlier this year. Um, and I just wonder if that kind of turn of foot and that finishing speed is going to be as effective over the mile and an eighth in a more stiffly run pace situation. So that's my concern with our collector. I'm not closed-minded to the fact that he might just improve. I just, in experience, more often than not, it's a matter of circumstances that cause performances like Art Collector's last race and not the fact that this horse suddenly got so much better from May to June. That's my take on Art Collector. Um, and uh, just want to comment um, also on um, attachment rate. Um, I gave him a long look in this race, too. What bothers me with attachment rate is he's one of these horses that never changes leads. He just always hangs on his left lead, and he hasn't been finishing off his races that great since they've stretched him out to two turns, and I kind of suspect it's his lack of lead change that's getting to him. So until he sorts that out, I think he's a horse that might have trouble continuing to stretch out in distance. Well, that's a really good point on attachment rate, and... and um, uh, uh, he could still get in the super. He could still finish fourth. I don't know if he can do it without changing leads, but um, but that's a, a really good observation. Yeah, Chris, I, just, I, I think you had more. Yeah, I just was going to say that Man in the Can was the other horse that I had not mentioned. I figured you might be on him. His last race, uh, Dean Martini, who he sort of trounced, came back and won the Ohio Derby. So that figure... Um, you know, he, that was probably a pretty good race. Um, although the Ohio Derby field wasn't that strong still, that does say something. So I think man in the can definitely is another horse you could use in here. And I guess, you know, Dave and I just have a little bit different opinion on art collector, but that's why they run the races. And it'll be interesting to see what he does to me. He just seems very versatile. He does have a nice, uh, kind of steady stride. I don't think he's going to be pace affected. I don't think it really matters where they put him in the race. He's going to run his race and he always finishes the, his races strongly. So we'll see. Um, it'll be interesting. You know, that's one, that's one worse where um, if he doesn't win, that's probably going to hurt me quite a bit <laughs> tomorrow. So I hope David's wrong in this case, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's right. We'll, we'll see. Um, this is a, a really interesting race.
All right, David, did you have any more on this race? Uh, I think we have spoken about it pretty in depth. Yeah, I think that about wraps it up. I, I just had trouble kind of wrapping my head around this race because, as, as I said at the top, I don't love anybody in this race. And I'm not going to be surprised if Art Collector wins. I mean, in some ways, you can make the case that he and Swiss Skydiver are the two most likely winners. I just feel like it's a more evenly matched field than the speed figures might make it seem. So I wanted to lean more towards the prices, but I don't feel like this is a race where any result is going to shock me. All right. Now, did you folks have any additional plays. Uh, I know there's some other stakes on the card. I, I, I haven't looked at it, but um, maybe you guys have, if you have any spot plays. David, anything? I, I didn't look at too many of the other races. Um, I did take a glance at the Appalachian, the fourth, the uh, one stakes we didn't really talk about. Um, I am interested in a horse in that race, uh, Enola Gay. I don't think she's going to be the six to one she has in the morning line. To me, she looks like um, I just think people are going to be on her because uh, she was so impressive in her debut at Kentucky Downs last year. I don't think she's really a six furlong kind of horse. I think Suge probably ran her in that stakes at Aqueduct last year just because it was coming up at the end of the turf season. Uh, she's one that I tabbed last year, would probably want to stretch out in distance at some point. So she's got to get faster, but I think she could be a contender in this race because once um, you get past the favorite Alms, who is like a legitimate favorite, she's the most likely winner. Um, I think the rest of them look pretty evenly matched, and I would think Enola Gay is the one that has the most upside. All right, Chris, did you have anything? That was exactly the same horse I was going to mention. I mean, the for fact that she won a turf sprint for Shug right off, oh, it's a first-time starter to me is an indication. She's really good. She's bred to run longer. She's probably developed a lot. And the fact he brings her back, you know, in this grade two at a mile, it, to me, is a really positive sign. Um, and Alves is definitely the one to beat, but her her last race wasn't that great. She actually had a tough post but she got a pretty good trip and uh, you know her race just wasn't that good so to me you know enola gay clearly the 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 value play although I, like david said you have to wait and see how they play the race um but that was the other horse that i was going to mention so that's a good sign that we're both on the same one there all right i i i would only say that alms did seem to be exposed in her last race so i wouldn't i certainly wouldn't rely on her as the favorite but i don't have anything else because i haven't looked at any races so uh with that i'd like to thank our guest david aragona david thanks for taking the time during your very busy schedule to <laughs> handicap with us thanks for having me on this was fun yeah, yeah thanks awesome. dave really appreciate it so i think that is a wrap that will conclude show number 71 of the sport of kings pod have a great day at keeneland at Belmont and wherever you may be playing this weekend. And please enjoy the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout. I'll see you on Florida Kings. Cheers. Video. Yeah.